It feels like we're all being told to go on this diet, take that supplement. Ozempic will give you depression, but you know what'll cure that? Weed. Or you could try to balance your hormones. At Science Versus, we're like, what the f*** is going on? Forget the crap online and listen to Science Versus. Just the facts. Oh, and a bunch of stupid jokes. What is a ghost's favorite fruit? Booberries. That's Science VS. New season out on Spotify soon. Due to the graphic nature of this kingpin's crimes, listener discretion is advised. This episode includes discussions of murder, torture, and drug abuse that some people may find offensive. We advise extreme caution for children under 13. It was the mid-1980s, somewhere in the jungles outside Medellin, Colombia. Multi-millionaire narcotics trafficker Pablo Escobar was performing routine maintenance on his cocaine empire by torturing a traitor. Pablo's personal team of hitmen, his sicarios, tortured at his command. They had many methods to deal with traitors, from drilling holes in knees or fingers to cutting off appendages to gouging out eyeballs with hot spoons. A Sicario answered the phone. It was Pablo's wife, Maria Victoria Henao. Pablo's demeanor shifted immediately as he took the call. He murmured sweetly into the phone. But the traitor wouldn't shut up. Pablo couldn't have a proper conversation with his wife with someone shrieking in the background. Pablo signaled to his Sicarios. Much better. Pablo told his wife he loved her. Beside him, the Sicarios dragged away the traitor's corpse. Just another day in the office for the world's most powerful and dangerous cocaine trafficker. I'm Howell Hargett. And I'm Kate Leonard. And this is Kingpins, a ParCast original. Every Friday, we journey inside the ranks of organized crime rings, from street gangs to mafiosos, to understand how a kingpin or queenpin rises to the top of the underworld. And why they fall. As we follow the lives of infamous crime bosses, we'll explore how money and power change them, and how it changed the community around them. You can find episodes of Kingpins and all other ParCast originals for free on Spotify or wherever you listen to podcasts. To stream Kingpins for free on Spotify, just open the app, tap Browse, and type Kingpins in the search bar. At ParCast, we're grateful for you, our listeners. You allow us to do what we love. Let us know how we're doing. Reach out on Facebook and Instagram at ParCast and Twitter at ParCast Network. And if you enjoy today's episode, the best way to help us is to leave a five-star review wherever you're listening. It really does help us. This is our first in a four-episode series on legendary cocaine trafficker Pablo Escobar. Throughout the 1980s, Pablo headed up the Medellin cartel, overseeing the smuggling of 80 tons of cocaine into the United States every month. By some estimates, the Medellin cartel was making more than $70 million a day. 
During this episode, we'll get to know Pablo at his most powerful, and then take a look at his childhood and early criminal career, sussing out all the details that set him on a path toward his destiny, becoming the most powerful, rich, and dangerous cocaine trafficker the world has ever seen. Pablo Escobar's life is defined by dramatic contradictions. He made his fortune illegally transporting a highly addictive and destructive substance, but he slept beneath a photo of the Virgin Mary. He was a multimillionaire, but he always wore a t-shirt and sneakers and preferred fast food to fancy meals. As much as Pablo was feared for mandating torture and executions, he was also beloved for his charitable work in Colombia. In early 1982, when Pablo was 32 years old, he was at a soccer game in Medellin with some friends, including his cousin Jaime. As usual, Pablo had made sure they could enjoy the game from the best field-level seats. It was a great game, so it came as a shock when Pablo insisted that they leave in the middle of the action. Pablo hustled everyone out of the stands for an emergency but it wasn't what anyone was expecting. Pablo had gotten word that a fire was tearing through a dump nearby called Morabita. The dump was home to the poorest people in Medellin. They lived in shanties cobbled together from whatever they could salvage. Pablo made his entire entourage leave the game so they could check on the status of the fire and its victims. When they arrived, Morabita was mostly gone up in flames, along with all the shacks the poor had been living in. It was a chaotic, horrifying scene. Pablo was heartbroken, but he was also invigorated. He had the resources to help these people. Pablo immediately appointed his cousin Jaime to head a committee for the recovery effort. The committee found a location to build homes for everyone who had lost theirs in the fire. They formed a budget for construction, and Pablo financed it. The project was called Medellin Sin Tugurios, or Medellin Without Shantytowns. Pablo paid for the construction of over 400 homes and allowed needy families to move in free of charge. The new neighborhood he constructed became known as Barrio Pablo Escobar. A few months after the fire, Pablo's goodwill paid off. He was elected to a seat in the Chamber of Representatives of the Colombian Congress. Some claim Pablo's kindness toward the people of Colombia was just a ploy to ensure votes. Even if that's true, he's still beloved for it. To this day, some Colombians still honor Pablo by hanging photographs of him in their homes and businesses. Pablo's tendency toward paradox makes him a perplexing figure. It can be hard to believe that the same man who built soccer fields with stadium lighting all over Colombia so children could play soccer safely at night is also responsible for hundreds, maybe even thousands, of assassinations. His unimaginable riches don't explain the why behind the paradoxes, but they do explain the how. With millions of dollars in cash at his fingertips at any given moment, Pablo could do whatever he wanted. Sometimes he wanted to fund medical treatment for needy Colombians. And sometimes he wanted to plant a bomb. 
in a government building. His money made both possible with a snap of his fingers. In 1981, when Pablo's multi-billion dollar cocaine empire was at its height, he was only 31 years old. He had a full head of dark, wavy hair and a thick mustache across his entire upper lip. He was paunchy, and at five feet six inches, he was a little touchy about his diminutive height. He liked to quip that he was a few inches taller than Al Capone, the legendary American gangster. In fact, Capone stood a couple of inches taller than Pablo. But by almost every other measurement, Pablo was bigger. In 1981, he was manufacturing and delivering four out of every five lines of cocaine snorted in the United States, and he had just put roots down in Europe. Pablo increased his organization's manufacturing volume every year, but there seemed to be no limit to the world's appetite for cocaine, and that meant there was no limit to Pablo's wealth. He was already the wealthiest man in Colombia in 1982, and well on his way to becoming the wealthiest man in the world. The DEA estimates that in the 1980s, it cost about $1,000 to manufacture one kilogram of cocaine in Colombia. It cost about $4,000 to smuggle it into the United States. There, it would sell for about $80,000. Every kilo netted a profit of $75,000. At his height, some estimates put Pablo's personal profits at $50 million a week. Pablo's brother, Roberto Escobar, acted as his lead accountant, overseeing a team of 10. The team budgeted $2,500 a month for rubber bands to keep track of the cash. There was so much money coming in, it couldn't all be laundered through banks and Pablo's vast real estate holdings. Roberto would simply store massive sums in caletas, hiding places built into the walls, floors, and even swimming pools of houses all over Medellin. Caleta translates literally to creek. These were like little hidden rivers full of money, flowing unseen just beneath the plaster and floorboards. Roberto would store $5 million, sometimes more, inside one caleta. The hideaways would be lined with bags of coffee because it absorbed the unpleasant smell Cash took on when it became damp. Roberto would pay the residents of the Caleta homes handsomely for the inconvenience of having their walls stuffed with illegal cash. But even though Roberto took great pains to protect the stored bills, he still had to write off about 10% of their cash holdings every year. Millions were lost due to water damage, rats nibbling on the bills, or simply forgetting where the money was stored. Pablo had so much money, he literally couldn't spend it fast enough. What he didn't give to charity, he spent in one of two ways, on his business and on his family. As you can imagine, his spending in both these areas was often eccentric and frivolous, but occasionally it was also ingenious. One night, Pablo was watching a James Bond movie with Roberto and some friends. It was probably the 1977 film The Spy Who Loved Me, since the film features a submarine modeled after a Lotus Esprit S1 sports car. During the viewing, Pablo commented that they should try smuggling cocaine in submarines. 
Everyone thought this idea was preposterous, but of course no one said so. They agreed that smuggling in a submarine was inspired. But now they had to figure out how to get their hands on one. Purchasing a submarine outright would blow their cover. So a Russian engineer and a British engineer were brought to Colombia to construct two submarines. Because why have one submarine when you can have two? Roberto was an engineer, so he designed the electrical systems when he wasn't busy keeping track of Pablo's cash. The submarines were constructed for efficiency. No frills, just plenty of space for cargo. Once they were operational, the submarines could carry up to 1,200 kilograms of cocaine to the coast of the United States every few weeks. Divers would swim out and manually transport their loads to the Florida shore. Roberto claims that Pablo was the first smuggler to use this method, and it remains popular today. In July of 2019, the DEA busted a submarine carrying 17,000 pounds of cocaine. Pablo also invested a lot of money in the manufacturing arm of his business. The bulk of his cocaine was produced in enormous laboratories hidden deep in the Colombian jungle. Each complex was more like a village than a lab. Pablo provided living accommodations, schools, dining areas, and medical treatment facilities for the hundreds of workers who lived there. One of Pablo's most ingenious labs was near the Venezuelan border in an isolated area called Los Llanos Orientales. This particular lab had its own set of runways, so the smuggling planes could pick up the drugs directly from the source. Unfortunately, the runways made the laboratory easy to spot from overhead, which made them a sitting target for law enforcement. But that problem was solved with a literal fleet of homes on wheels. Most of the time, the runway would be full of small houses where the laboratory workers lived and slept. When a plane approached, the workers had three minutes to exit their homes and push them off the runway. The houses were so small, they could be pushed by one person. The plane would immediately taxi under the tree canopy, hidden from view. After it refueled and was loaded with cargo, it would take off, and the homes would be rolled back into place, once again obscuring the landing strip. For his family, Pablo built an incredible paradise called Hacienda Napoles. It was a few hours' drive outside the city of Medellin, on a little under eight square miles of land with a river running through it. On the property, Pablo built a massive mansion for himself and his family, several houses to host guests, garages to store his car collection, basketball courts, soccer fields, swimming pools, a private cinema, several fully outfitted kitchens with private chefs, a few runways, and an airplane hangar. He had boats, motorcycles, and even a hovercraft. But what really made Hacienda Napoles famous was the zoo. Pablo imported hippopotamuses, rhinoceroses, giraffes, ostriches, elephants, emus, zebras, monkeys, and kangaroos to fill out his zoo. He smuggled all the animals into Colombia, skirting international laws about transporting wild animals. He enjoyed the subliminal message the animals sent. If he could illegally transport a rhinoceros, cocaine would be a snap. 
Haciendonopolis was known for epic parties that lasted over a week. Pablo would entertain everyone from celebrities to politicians to his own employees who needed to blow off steam. He'd pay top dollar to bring the most popular performers from all over South America to come perform at his parties. Pablo loved being the center of attention and would flit among his guests reciting poetry or singing tango music from Argentina. But as much as Pablo encouraged his guests to imbibe, Pablo rarely drank and never used cocaine. He preferred to smoke marijuana. Pablo mounted his very first plane, a Piper Cub single propeller, above the entrance to his private paradise. It was a small plane designed to fly low and avoid radar detection. Pablo considered it a reminder to his guests. All the things they were about to enjoy started with that little plane. Coming up, we'll explore how Pablo's devotion to both charity and violence originated in his childhood. A childhood he almost didn't survive. This episode is brought to you by Anytime Fitness. Forget dark alleys and cemeteries. For some, the gym is the scariest place of all. But it doesn't have to be. With a personalized plan and expert coaching, Anytime Fitness can help make the gym less frightening. Get more for your gym membership than machines. Get personalized support anytime, anywhere. Visit anytimefitness.com to try it for free today. Terms, conditions, and restrictions apply. See website for details. Now, back to the story. Pablo Escobar's contradictory legacies as a humanitarian and a murderer were both fueled by his humongous fortune. Now, we'll explore the childhood that built the foundation for such a dynamic kingpin. Pablo Emilio Escobar Gaviria was born on December 1, 1949, on a ranch in Rio Negro, Colombia, about 35 kilometers from Medellin. He was the third of seven children born to his parents, Abel de Jesus Dari Escobar Echeverri, a rancher and farmer, and Hemilda de los Dolores Gaviria Berrio, a primary school teacher. Pablo's birth coincided with the beginning of a decade-long war between liberals and conservatives in Colombia that left hundreds of thousands dead. The prolonged conflict became known simply as La Violencia. From 1948 to around 1958, peasant guerrilla armies, known as Los Chusmeros, the mobs, roamed the nation, killing innocent people they thought were part of the Liberal Party. Their preferred weapon was the machete, a long, sharp knife with a sturdy handle. It was prevalent as a farming tool before it became a murder weapon. During La Violencia, now infamous machete mutilation techniques were born. One is known as the flower vase. The victim would be decapitated and their limbs cut off. Then their limbs would be stuffed into their neck, turning their torso into a vase for a gruesome bouquet. The most notorious is the Colombian necktie, where the victim's throat is slit and their tongue is pulled out through the cut. La Violencia defined Pablo's early childhood and gave him one of his earliest memories. In the middle of the night in 1957, 
seven-year-old Pablo woke up in the room he shared with his brother and sister. Outside, he could hear shouting, gunshots, and screams. He knew what this meant. The moment Pablo and his family had been dreading was finally here. Los Chusmeros had come for them. Down the street, Pablo could hear his neighbors being dragged from their homes. His family barred the door. Pablo's mother, Hemilda, instructed the children to get under the bed, then covered them with the mattress and blankets. Pablo and his siblings tried to be quiet. Any noise could mean death. But Roberto remembers little Pablo crying in fear. He gave his brother a baby bottle to soothe him. From their hiding place, Pablo could hear his mother crying and praying. Roberto remembers their father saying, they're going to kill us, but we can save the kids. Los Chusmeros did their best to break down the door, but it held strong. For a moment, there was a reprieve. Perhaps they would simply move on to the next house. But that's when they heard the flames. If they couldn't break in, Los Chusmeros would burn the house down. Pablo and his family nearly perished inside the burning house. If they had, perhaps Colombia's democracy would be stronger today. Certainly, more people would be alive. But that night, the Colombian army came through Rio Negro to fight Los Chusmeros, and they pulled Pablo's entire family from the burning house. The shell-shocked family walked through what was left of Rio Negro toward the schoolhouse, where survivors were gathering. Pablo's brother Roberto carried him through the streets. The only light came from burning buildings. Bodies were everywhere, laying in the gutter, hanging from the streetlights, and piled in the fields, lit on fire. The smell of burning flesh would stay with Pablo for the rest of his life. Roberto later wrote, Colombia has always been a country of violence. It was part of our heritage. Pablo's childhood normalized bloodshed and built up his tolerance for it. He would witness and command brutal violence unflinchingly for the rest of his life. That night, when La Violencia came to Pablo's own home, he learned that violence could be a catalyst for change. And Pablo wanted to see big changes in Colombia. Crime was interwoven into the folklore of Pablo's family history, so much so that his kingpin journey seems almost predestined. Pablo grew up with the stories of his grandfather, Roberto Gaviria, Pablo's brother's namesake. Gaviria made his fortune smuggling a popular Colombian liquor called Tapetusa. It was distilled by native Colombians, but the government applied a heavy tax before it was sold to the public. Gaviria sidestepped the government by offering the Tapetusa distiller a competitive wholesale price, then smuggling the liquor to his customers inside a coffin. He hired men to carry the coffin through town and women to walk alongside it weeping. Then he would sell the liquor at a markdown from what the government charged, though he added just enough of his own tax to rake in a small profit on every sale. Gaviria was arrested after a neighbor informed on him to authorities, but he was released a few days later, presumably because he paid someone off. 
This might be the most important lesson Gaviria left for Pablo. Always plan to share some of your profits with law enforcement. You can try to hide from them, but it's a lot more efficient to have them on your side. When Pablo was eight years old, his mother, Hemilda, had had enough of the raids in Rio Negro. She sent Pablo and Roberto to live in relative safety with their grandmother, Inez Berrio, in Medellin in 1958. Pablo and Roberto's grandmother was a stern, industrious woman. She organized part of her home into a mini factory to cook and bottle sauces she would sell to markets. The transformation of her kitchen into an assembly line provided Pablo with a blueprint for his first cocaine manufacturing facilities. Eventually, Emilda joined Pablo and Roberto in Medellin. Their father Abel tried city life, but found he preferred the quiet of the country. He returned to Rio Negro, despite the still prevalent danger of La Violencia. At first, the lights and bustle of the city were overwhelming to Pablo and Roberto after growing up in the remote countryside. But once they settled in, Medellin would become baked into Roberto and Pablo's identities and define their future careers. Roberto wrote, We no longer belong to the country. Medellin had become our city, and eventually we would know every street, every alley. The brothers often played soccer in the street with other children. Some of their playmates would later play important roles in the Medellin cartel, like Jorge Ochoa and their cousin Gustavo. They played with a makeshift ball made out of clothes stuffed inside a plastic bag and tied with a rope. Occasionally, local police would confiscate their ball to get them out of the street. This ruined the game, but none of the other kids ever considered confronting the police. Pablo was different. The next time the police took their ball, Pablo told the boys to throw rocks at the patrol car. They got a couple of good shots in, perhaps too good. They cracked the windshield of one of the patrol cars, and then they didn't run away fast enough. Roberto, Pablo, and a few other members of their group were apprehended and brought to the police station. The police captain tried to intimidate them, threatening to lock them up. All of the other children were too afraid to speak, but Pablo, one of the smallest among them, stepped forward. He politely told the policemen that they were tired of the police taking their ball and offered to pay them to give it back. Even at his young age, Pablo understood the lesson his grandfather's criminal career taught him, something that was commonplace in Colombia. All the rules were for sale. Growing up around violence, poverty, and oppression from corrupt authorities defined Pablo's two childhood dreams. He wanted to be a millionaire, and he wanted to be president of Colombia. As a young teen, Pablo latched onto rumors that U.S. meddling had resulted in the death of Jorge Eliezer Gaitan, a presidential candidate who stood for unionization and fair land distribution. His assassination led to La Violencia, which almost killed Pablo's entire family. Whether that conspiracy theory was true or not, it's undisputed that the U.S. involvement in South America typically serves the U.S. at the expense of the most poverty-stricken. 
Pablo remained a dedicated anti-imperialist for the rest of his life, vowing to change the societal structure that resulted in the majority of the people living in poverty, while a few controlled most of the property and money. In 1974, when Pablo was 24, he studied political science at the Universidad de Antioquia, planning to become a criminal lawyer. Roberto remembers Pablo speaking to crowds whenever they would listen, talking about what he planned to do as president of Colombia. Quote, I'll take 10% of the earnings of the richest people to help the poor. Pablo also pledged to create relationships with more developed countries. If he could entice them to move manufacturing centers to Colombia, more jobs would be available to unskilled workers. Pablo's ability to see the big picture and his own role in it developed early. Pablo was forced to drop out of college after only two years. He didn't have the money to pay for his tuition. But college wasn't the only place he had been getting an education. While Pablo was attending university, he was already gravitating toward a criminal career. College stimulated his intellect, but it was all talk. Crime was all action, and it paid. Up next, Pablo Escobar leans into a life of crime, where he'll learn the skills that built his cocaine empire, gathering allies, smuggling illegal commodities, and of course, his favorite tool, murder. Now, back to the story. Pablo Escobar's childhood was saturated in poverty, violence, and corruption. That challenging upbringing primed him for the criminal life. When he ran out of money for tuition after only two years of college in 1974, the 24-year-old Pablo needed to find a job, and nothing paid like crime. As a teenager in the late 60s, Pablo always felt more at home among the street gangs than at school where his teachers often found his passion for overhauling their society idealistic and short-sighted. On the street, Pablo could put his Robin Hood ideals into practice instead of just arguing about them. For Pablo, criminal activity was justified, even called for by Colombia's oppressive society. Acting outside the law was a form of resistance. Pablo's first forays into the crime world are not well documented. His brother Roberto claims that many of the stories about Pablo, especially early in his career, were fabricated by his enemies. Other sources claim that Pablo never held a legitimate job or pursued an education. He simply joined a street gang as a teenager and never looked back. The truth is probably somewhere in the middle. One of the earliest stories about Pablo's criminal debut took place in the fall of 1971, when he was only 21 years old. Whether it's true or not, this story is woven into Pablo's legend as a hero to the peasants of Colombia. It was the first time he used murder to bring justice to the people. Diego Echevarria Misas was a prominent Colombian businessman who lived in a castle modeled after French medieval structures. Diego donated much of his fortune to charitable causes like building schools and hospitals, hoping to build a reputation as a philanthropist. Although his upper-crust peers respected and praised his charitable efforts, 
the lower class despised him. As far as the poor were concerned, no philanthropic gesture could make up for how Diego made his fortune. Diego owned several textile manufacturing factories, and they were notorious for underpaying and mistreating workers. Even worse, Diego expanded his land holdings by intimidating local communities and forcing them off their land. When peasants tried to stand up to him, they were arrested or even killed. In August 1971, Diego was kidnapped for ransom. This was relatively common in Colombia. Ransom was an easy way for gangs to bring in extra money. Diego's family paid the ransom quickly, but six weeks passed with no word on his whereabouts. Then, on September 19, 1971, his body was discovered in a pit near Rio Negro, the rural town where Pablo was born. Diego's body bore indications of the torture he'd withstood before he was strangled to death. His family mourned, but the poor rejoiced. It's not clear whether Pablo actually committed the kidnapping and murder himself, ordered someone else to do it, or was part of a larger criminal group that did the crime together. There is no evidence linking Pablo personally to the murder, and he was never prosecuted for it. But there are anecdotal accounts of Pablo being stopped on the street by strangers who wanted to shake his hand and thank him for bringing justice to the poor. Whether Pablo was involved in Diego's murder or not, he was building a reputation as someone who was in touch with the struggles of the poor and took action on their behalf. It was around this time that Pablo was bestowed with his first nickname, Dr. Echeverria, or simply El Doctor. Although this crime might have satisfied Pablo's ideals as a man of the people, the reality was that Pablo needed money. To that end, one of his earliest alleged criminal ventures was robbing banks. Pablo kept his methods very simple. He would calmly enter a bank holding a rifle. As soon as patrons and staff laid eyes on the weapon, they knew it was a robbery. Pablo approached the nearest teller, leaning casually against the counter with the rifle pointed reasonably at the ceiling. He selected one teller to unload the safe. Everyone else stayed put. While Pablo waited for his stacks of cash to get bagged up, he'd make small talk with the employees and customers. His demeanor was more laid-back lunch than active robbery. The hostages found Pablo's nonchalant, even jovial attitude unnerving. Many of his early victims assumed he had to be on drugs. How else could he stay so unruffled, even as the police arrived on the scene? In reality, Pablo's violent childhood had stripped him of a sense of fear. No chemical courage was necessary. Pablo became known among other criminals in Medellin for his ballsy approach and unruffled demeanor under pressure. Other petty lawbreakers flocked to him, appreciating the sense of security they got when working with someone so level-headed. Without really trying, Pablo formed his first informal gang. Once Pablo had a group to work with, he moved on from bank robberies to stealing cars. The timeline on this remains spotty. Some sources say he was an accomplished car thief by the time he was 20 in 1970. Others say it didn't start until after he left college in 1974. 
His brother Roberto outright denies Pablo ever participated in a car thieving ring, but the stories remain. Pablo's gang would follow drivers back to their cars, then take their keys at gunpoint just before they drove away. The cars would then be driven to a local chop shop where they would be dismantled. The gang split the profits from the parts with the mechanics. Eventually, they graduated to stealing new cars, which were worth the most when sold as is. Trouble was, they couldn't be resold after they'd been reported stolen. This led Pablo to create his first formal relationships with corrupt police officers. The police on Pablo's payroll would forget to file or even refuse to create a record of complaints about stolen new vehicles. With no record of the theft, Pablo's crew was free to sell the stolen vehicles at a big profit. Corrupt police were common in Colombia, so much so that officers were often more like criminals than law enforcement. Police didn't just turn a blind eye to crime. They even participated in criminal activity alongside the gang. There were even fights between policemen who were on the payrolls of competing gangs. Eventually, Pablo expanded his scam. He offered the entire public protection in exchange for payment, with the guarantee that those under his protection wouldn't have their cars stolen. Pablo also infiltrated the government office that issued car titles. That way, he could bypass any suspicion that the cars were stolen because they'd have legitimate titles. Around this same time in the mid-70s, when Pablo was in his mid-20s, he was learning the value of murder. If an official refused his bribe and slowed down his transactions, Pablo would have him murdered. If a member of his gang lied or stole or refused an order, Pablo would have him murdered. Pablo quickly realized that murder was a very fast and efficient way to tell everyone about his power and keep misbehavior to a minimum. He was beginning to develop a mantra that would define his business for the rest of his life, plato o plomo, which translates to silver or lead. Officials, employees, gang members, they could all decide if they preferred a bribe or a bullet in the head. Throughout the 70s, Pablo was building a reputation for himself as a gang leader. But his scams were still on a relatively small scale. To take his criminal game to the next level, he'd need to learn from a real kingpin. Rafael Puente was known in Medellin as a successful contraband smuggler. He would receive shipments of items like cigarettes, electronics, accessories, and apparel from countries like the United States, the United Kingdom, and Japan. The cargo would be unloaded off ships that docked in the coastal Colombian city of Torbo and packed onto trucks that drove the merchandise to Medellin. Pablo met Rafael through mutual friends at a soccer game. Rafael offered Pablo a job as a bodyguard, but he quickly proved his worth as a lieutenant by selling contraband cigarettes. Once Rafael saw Pablo's potential, he brought him a problem that was throwing off his entire business. Rafael used about 50 workers to unload his merchandise and pack it onto the trucks in Turbo, about 340 kilometers from Medellin. Trouble was, 
Raphael sometimes lost up to 50% of his merchandise between the shipping container and the truck. He offered Pablo 10% of his profits if he could reduce the amount of merchandise that was stolen. Pablo made a counteroffer. He would personally oversee the transportation of the goods from Turbo to Medellin. Pablo would do the first trip for nothing, so Rafael could evaluate his performance. It was a deal. Pablo traveled to Turbo and met with Rafael's team. He found that the workers were severely underpaid and therefore had no allegiance to their boss. The goods were being stolen by his own disgruntled workers. Rafael didn't have a security problem. He had a loyalty problem. Pablo arranged a fancy seafood dinner, complete with wine, for all the workers. Under these pleasant conditions, Pablo made his case. He wanted to help make their lives better. Pablo pledged half of his own salary to the workers if they stopped stealing the merchandise. If any more merchandise was stolen, however, Pablo would lose his job and the workers would lose their jobs. Pablo's pitch was so effective that some workers even returned merchandise they'd already taken before Pablo's arrival. Pablo was already building another axiom that would define his business practices for the rest of his life. Rewards generated more loyalty than fear. Pablo could have scared the workers straight, but instead, his generosity got him something far more valuable and long-lasting, their loyalty and respect. Pablo drove a jeep ahead of the caravan of trucks carrying the contraband, paying the required bribes all the way to Medellin. When they arrived, Rafael was very impressed with his delivery. When asked how he did it, Pablo simply said he'd done right by the workers. But in return, Pablo wanted 50% of Rafael's profits. Pablo rationalized that Rafael would still see bigger profits than he had in the past, when he sometimes lost more than half of his merchandise on its way to Medellin. After some bargaining, they agreed on 40%. Unknown to Rafael, 20% of his profits went directly back to his workers. Pablo stayed true to his word, and the workers rewarded him with the nickname that would follow him the rest of his life, El Patron, the boss. Pablo became Rafael's right hand. He got comfortable with different smuggling techniques and negotiating with the local authorities in all the towns between Turbo and Medellin. All that experience meant Pablo was finally making the kind of money he'd always dreamed of, about $250,000 a month. He'd achieved his childhood dream of becoming a millionaire. Around 1974, when Pablo was 24, he tapped his brother Roberto to manage his income. Roberto started investing in real estate and oversaw Pablo's payments to the workers handling the contraband in Turbo. As for himself, Pablo finally had a disposable income to spend on his family, even taking them on a trip to Disney World. Roberto also remembers Pablo bringing a truckload of food to the Medellin slums and handing it out to the people who lived there. With his very first influx of cash, Pablo was already looking after the most vulnerable, as he'd always pledged. But it couldn't last forever. 
Sometime in 1974 or 1975, Pablo was leading his caravan of 40 trucks along their usual route between Turbo and Medellin. Pablo decided to stop for lunch, so he sent the caravan along without him. At this point, Pablo had credibility with local officials, and he knew he could catch up and pay the bribes after the trucks passed through the next town. But today was different. Acting on orders from superiors, one of the policemen on Pablo's payroll betrayed him. 37 of the 40 trucks were seized. One of the three drivers who escaped called Pablo and alerted him. Pablo abandoned his distinctive Jeep and took a public bus instead, which allowed him to slip through the police roadblock. In fact, he got a good look at all the seized trucks as the bus went by. Luckily, Rafael accepted the loss without much fuss. When smuggling, there's always the chance of a bust. But for Pablo, this close shave with the law was a wake-up call. If he was going to risk getting arrested, he wanted it to be for his own operation, not someone else's. It was time to start building his own business. Pablo had just learned of a new money-making opportunity with a much better return than contraband, cocaine. He thought he was just moving on to the next money-making scheme. He had no idea that he was embarking on his life's work. When he was done, the world would never be the same. Thanks again for listening to Kingpins. Join us next week to hear how Pablo started his cocaine empire with just one tiny prop plane, and in six years expanded it to a fleet of jets that carried 6,000 pounds of cargo each. You can find more episodes of Kingpins and all other ParCast originals for free from your phone, desktop, or smart speaker. To stream Kingpins on Spotify, just open the app and type Kingpins in the search bar. And don't forget to follow us on Facebook and Instagram at ParCast and Twitter at ParCast Network. We'll see you next time. Kingpins was created by Max Cutler and is a production of Cutler Media and is part of the ParCast Network. It is produced by Max and Ron Cutler, sound designed by Dick Schroeder, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro and Paul Mahler. Additional production assistance by Maggie Admire and Freddie Beckley. Kingpins is written by Hannah McIntosh and stars Kate Leonard and Howell Hargett. 